you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining me today. Glad you're here. My guest today is Mark Allen Bover. He's someone who earned a huge following on Twitter by just sharing his thoughts and ideas. I say this a lot, but the internet is the most powerful tool ever developed by man for self-development. And I'm convinced that how one chooses to spend their time on the internet will play an outsized role in how their life works out. Twitter, as an extension of the internet is an app to be curated so that you can only see that which adds value to your life. My guest today is someone who adds tremendous value on Twitter. That's how he's earned such a large following. He's one of the first people I followed on Twitter, and I recommend it. Think of Twitter like this. If you took an hour of your day today, and all you did was visit the Twitter app, unfollowed a celebrity that you followed for years and don't even really know why, You click unfollow, or maybe you follow someone who's really good at catching footballs. What will that do for you in three, five, seven, eight years? Answer, nothing. It won't do anything for you. And to make matters worse, you'll get whatever some celebrity is thinking reverberating through your mind for the next five, ten years, or however long you follow them and they decide to share their thoughts, however frequently they decide to share But if you unfollowed them and followed someone who instead reads a lot or is someone who's perceptive or has a unique ability to distill the wisdom they've gleaned from books they've read or their lived experience, well, if you did nothing else for that hour today but unfollowed someone who adds no value and added someone, decided to follow someone like Mark Allen Bover, who adds a lot of value, well, that would be a productive hour if you just did that one thing. Do it five times, unfollow people who add nothing to your life, and follow sharp and incisive people who aim to add value to your life. And you started a transformation in your thinking that can really pay dividends five, seven, eight, ten years from now. Mark is one of the first people I followed when I joined Twitter because he's such a good writer. He has a keen insight into everyday life that I admire. And he has an extraordinary ability to extract more from an existence, (laughs) let's face it, an existence that can be tedious and mundane at times. Hell, even Dan Bilzerian's life isn't filled with fun and excitement every hour of every day. Okay, bad example. (laughs) Even J.J. Reddick's life isn't filled with fun and excitement every hour. Is that name random? (laughs) I was watching the Pelicans game last night, since I'm living here in New Orleans, the, the NBA team, the New Orleans Pelicans. And he was ejected from the game by simply throwing the ball to the ref with a little spin to it. And it hit him in the knee and the ref called a technical and threw him out. It was so ridiculous. So he's here in New Orleans. He also has a podcast. So while Mark isn't a celebrity, he takes what an average or even a good writer might overlook and construct sentences and paragraphs that provide value to his readers, of which I count myself one. So in our chat today, he talks about leaders who are emerging from post-coronavirus era, men like Elon Musk, Dave Portnoy, 
and also a lady who Mark says would make a great president in 2024. In fact, he would like to support her if she were to run. And I'll let you tell, I'll let him tell you who that is. We also get into the election of this past year quite a bit. I ask him what it was like to live through the pandemic and election being a Michigan man. That was sort of the heart of it all in Michigan with Governor Whitmer, the Dominion voting machines, Detroit, electors who say they were intimidated into certifying the results. I ask him about all of that stuff. We cover a lot of ground. I think this was an easy discussion because Mark and I are the same age. We're both born in 1980, so we relate to each other on a wide range of issues. But I found him to be very wise. He gives great parenting advice. I ask him about what it was like getting divorced with three young kids and finding himself in the dating pool again. And he talks about how he manages his personal finances, which I should mention, Mark, like myself, does online coaching. While I mostly take people who are out of debt and coach them to financial independence and retiring early, Mark takes them even before that, which is Mark was in tens of thousands of dollars of debt at one time and has gotten to even, and so he helps people to do the same thing, get from underneath their debt. I've never recommended any coach besides myself, but I am. if I'm not your bag, I would encourage you to seek Mark's help. I think that highly of him. Now, without saying, without further ado, please enjoy my chat with Mark Allen Bover. Mark, welcome. Really glad to have you here, man. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be on. Good to finally catch up to you. Likewise. I saw where you tweeted today that this was one of the best days to be on Twitter. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, I mean, it, it was one of those days where the energy and it was off the charts. I, I, I'd said it was the top three days on Twitter in my seven years on the app. And it's definitely top two now that I think about it. It's election night of 2016 was pretty wild, but um, th- this might be, it might have surpassed it. The sort of protest revolution, whatever you want to call it, that's taken place in the financial realm is un- unreal. It'll be looked back on as, as uh, like the Boston Tea Party, somebody referred to it as. It's, it's like the uh, peasants revolting against the elite uh, <laughs> and being part of it and, and being in the conversation and, and, and witnessing it uh, is something uh, that none of us will forget on the Twitter sphere. Unfortunately, anybody who is, is not on Twitter will never understand. So you can't share this joy with, you know, my, what I call my real life friends, you know, cause they won't even, they don't even get, it. I'd be like, dude, Twitter was so awesome today. It was the greatest day on Twitter ever. They'll be like, yeah, okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, cool, I'm bro. getting I'm getting DM'd on Instagram with people asking me to put in layman's terms what's been happening, and yeah, yeah I'm yeah. no expert, but I'll I'll tell you what I told them, and then you correct me if I'm wrong. But basically, retail investors, which is average Joes like you and me, have mm-hmm. revolted. We have decided, or they have this Reddit subreddit group has decided to target a prominent hedge fund to see what it is that they've shorted and then just pile on into that stock, jacking up the price. Is that basically what's happened? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's like finding out that, that your enemy is betting on a certain sports team. And so you stack the other team Mm -hmm. uh, with all the best players in the league and, and, you know, just stick it to them. So that's exactly what it is. You couldn't say it any better than that. I mean, I've heard a lot of people ask what's a short and stuff, but you know, really the easiest explanation is the bet 
that the stock is going to go down. Um, but it's, it's a little different than a regular bet in the sense that you don't just lose what you bet. You can lose a lot more. You can lose infinite amounts of money. And so this is really stuck it to them and, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I saw where the CEO shut down trading the CEO of Robinhood, shut yeah. down the ability to buy, but would allow you to sell. And so the question <laughs> was asked of him, why are you doing this? Did you, yeah. Were you contacted by the SEC or Melvin Capital? Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. Some other hedge fund. We don't know if he's giving a political answer or if he's being honest. Yeah. Is he having a liquidity problem? Because you're supposed to have as a brokerage so much on deposit, right? You're supposed to yeah. keep so much reserves. Yeah, Does he yeah. have some other problem? Is he saving investors from themselves? Is that what he's <laughs> trying to do? I saw where there was a class action lawsuit against Robin Hood today. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, to, to only allow one-sided trading in a stock is pretty unprecedented. I, I can't imagine that we've ever seen that ever. And I, I don't know where this will lead. I'm not sure where the 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 different legal ramifications are. I'm not too worried about that. What I think is it, it's like a shot. It's a warning shot to the to those people who think they can just make money hand over fist. I mean, the the company that comes in and shorts a stock like GameStop, they, they basically come in and they make a bet that the stock's going to go down. Then they pump up on CNBC that the stock's going bankrupt and that every you know, and they just make they print their own money, right? And and a bunch of kids on Reddit figured out the scam and beat them at their own game. And, and I can't tell you how satisfying that is. I mean, it's, it's like a, it's like a 1960s protest, but in the virtual world and, and you can't, you can't put into words yet exactly how meaningful that is. And they'll probably stomp it out and there'll be ramifications and there'll be changes to the laws and there'll be all kinds of things. It doesn't matter. It's like, you've got, you, you landed the blow. And once you know, <laughs> you can land a blow, your confidence is through the roof. You're never going to, you know, it's like you got to get that first shot in and we, you got the first shot and, and there's no going back from that. And, um, you know, people had, have had a lot of built up frustration against the establishment, I'll call them, you know, in quotes, cause I don't really, it's kind of like a amorphous group that when you say the establishment, but in general, people are fed up with the establishment. They're fed up with the, you know, transfer of wealth that's taken place in this country. The rich corporations like Facebook and Amazon and Apple are are just skyrocketing record sales while the rest of us sit at home and we can't go to restaurants and small businesses go out of, you know, go out of business and and we're watching, you know, neighbors live in unemployment and everything. And and I don't think you can really start to see how big that rift is between the haves and the have not, have nots. Um, but it keeps growing, it keeps getting bigger. And this was the first of many, I think, uh, class warfare, so to speak, in a digital world. Mm. Um, you know, they're going to close loopholes, but it's going to be like whack-a-mole. You know, the, <laughs> these people are going to keep popping up because, you know, it hasn't changed anything for their situation. And uh, as long as hedge funds get rich and people get bailed out and the little man gets 600 bucks from the government after being told he can't work for a year, this is going to keep happening. And, it, you know, Thankfully, it's peaceful in the sense that it's digital, it's money, it's numbers on a screen, and it's not something more violent than that. The main guy who started the buying, from what I understand, made almost $22 million. 
He started mm. with about 50,000 and he posts his W's as they come in. And mm -hmm. I saw where last night he had posted $22 million. He posted that he had paid off his student loans. It's crazy. Yeah, do, you get, unreal. do you get any sense of FOMO when you see people making quick money like that? Uh, no. Um, no, I gave that up a long time ago, even the, <laughs> with the Bitcoin stuff, you know, and, and I buy, I own a little bit of Bitcoin, but those are like lottery tickets, you know, uh, you got to look at it with some perspective. I mean, we might all get our, our lucky hit that gets us to be a millionaire, but you can't go seeking it out. You know, that guy could have just, just as easily lost everything uh, on that bet. Um, plenty of people have lost everything in those same situations. So um, I don't feel any FOMO whatsoever. Our time will come if it's meant to be. And, and if not, I mean, man, good for him. And I don't know if it's him or, or some other guy, but a, a lot of people are donating their proceeds from that stock trade to, the uh, barstool fund for small businesses. So they're, you know, they're not profiting. Maybe they're keeping a little for themselves, but they're not keeping it all. They're giving some back to the people who really need it. I think that's the other thing that needs to be mentioned about this is the emergence of new leaders. The election and the inauguration and everything kind of left this void over the last week where things felt a little listless. There was kind of this lack of leadership. And this whole thing brought forth a whole bunch of new leaders. Um, Mark Cuban stepped up. The uh, Portnoy, David Portnoy uh, from Barstool stepped up. Um, you've got Elon Musk stepping up. You've got a new class of leaders who've been kind of waiting, I think, for their time to shine. And they're stepping up. And, and we've, we've opened a whole new world of, of dialogue and, and leadership that uh, I'm so excited for the next decade. So you, you said that you own a little Bitcoin. With you being so active and such a prominent figure on Twitter, if I may, I'm surprised that you didn't get in super early on Bitcoin. <laughs> no, I, I gotta, I gotta take the L on that one. I, I, um, you know, I was very skeptical of it early on. I was like, nah, man, this thing's just something that's going to be, it's going to be denominated in U.S. dollars. How is it going to replace the U.S. dollar? You know, I was very, like, my logical brain just couldn't get me there, and uh, I didn't really dog on it because a lot of good people I know were telling me Bitcoin, Bitcoin, you know, but I just kind of stayed on the sidelines and, and, uh, you know, I'm, I made good money when it had the big run up, um, about three, four years ago, two, three years ago. I can't remember when that was, but when it had that shoot up to 20 K, um, I made a couple grand real quick and then I got out and I was happy, you know, I bought a new computer and, you know, I was just <laughs> happy with what happened. And I kind of did the same thing this last time to the run up to 40. I, you know, cashed out a couple grand in earnings on it and, and moved on. And it's still one of those things that I, I don't know if I'd be betting anything meaningful on it. Uh, it's kind of fun money that I throw in there for now, but uh, we'll see. I'm rooting for it now. I, before I was kind of like, ah, these guys are crazy. These Bitcoin, you know, these pe people on Bit Bitcoin Twitter would blow up my mentions. And, you know, the problem to like curing cancer is Bitcoin. You know, everything, everything's Bitcoin. Like, I'm like, ah, oh, man, I, my dog is sick. You know, oh, just buy more Bitcoin. <laughs> and I was like, dude. Um, but now I, I love them, man. I think that, because these are the same guys that are behind this, um, you know, this Reddit uh, GameStop stuff. And, and I, I get it. I'm fully on board. And, and my kids are coming up in their teen years and they know about Bitcoin and Hey, let's go. Let's see what happens. Awesome. Well, I tweeted recently that I know a guy who owns Bitcoin and hasn't told anybody. And then I said, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's yeah, that right, yeah, exist. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like a guy who does CrossFit and doesn't mention it. Right? 
I got a text. Yeah, right. I got a text from my commercial real estate buddy a few days ago, and he said, in the retail real estate world, everyone underwrites GameStop going out of business. So Mm. that's that's interesting. He Mm. he buys and leases real estate for a living. Oh yeah, I mean, I don't. As a business, it's silly, right? Like, I mean, GameStop. It's that's what makes it kind of comical. Almost, it's almost like, and just the name. Game stop. Like we're playing a game and it ended. I mean, just so many things about it. It couldn't have been more perfect. Speaking yeah, as yeah. a, a hardworking Michigan man, you're a single father of three. Can you talk about the the year 2020 and its impact on your life? Woo. Well, um, I'll tell you what, as an introvert, having three kids home 24-7, doing school, trying to do work, trying to t- just people around all the time. It was the most challenging thing mentally that I've ever done. People around all the time. Do you mean your, your kids or their yeah, friends my kids. or yeah, okay. just the kids, you know? So just, just having bodies, you know, people coming up all the time, asking me questions, needing things, whatever, just having the presence of other people around. And I'm a, I'm an introvert. I love my time to myself. I love my space, you know, and, and I've really made sure to get a lot of my own time to myself to recharge. I've learned about myself that I tend to burn out or, or hit my worst spots when I don't get alone time. But, you know, for a good eight months there, it was impossible to get some time to yourself. We were just locked in this house doing stuff. And uh, it was challenging. It was challenging for all of us, um, especially my, I got two teens and and an 11 year old and, and um, my two teens, they need to be around friends. They need to be around peers. They thrive on peer interaction right now. They don't need to see dad 24 <laughs> seven. So, um, their mental health was the most important thing to me was just keep them, you know, uh, their head above water, keep them with, from losing their confidence, keep them excited about life and keep the spirit alive. And so we did a lot of stuff, you know, we got outside and, and did hikes and I signed my son up, son up for some outdoor conditioning work, uh, through his jujitsu gym and, and my daughter played soccer and, and we kept our heads above, above water. And it was a challenge for sure. I never spent more time with my kids, which I'm thankful for. I always thought I'd want to spend infinite amounts of time with them. But there definitely comes a point, there's a limit <laughs> to where, you know, quantity does not mean quality. And what I found was that our quality time together tended to be about the same as it was before the pandemic when we were all going to school and going to work. And, and that taught me some important things about life and about time with kids because you can spend your life focused on your kids, but what they really need to see you doing is living life on your own and, and uh, setting an example. And when you're home all day, 24 seven, nobody's setting any examples for anything. We're just stuck here staring at each other. And, and it creates a little bit of a stasis that uh, I, I'll be happy to move on from for sure. There are two things that you said that I want to touch on. So the spending time with your kids reminded me of the post on Wait But Why about how something like 98% of your in-person time with your kids is done by the time they go off to college. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen that post? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. so good. Oh, I'm well aware of that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That hits. Yes. That hits home. I, I think about that often. And, and it, there was, this was the trouble and this is where the struggle came in over the pandemic was I've, I, have always wished for this much time with my kids. Right. But I found that it wasn't 
overall the quantity didn't enhance the relationship or anything you know there wasn't like i think i always daydreamed like when i was at my job all day that if i was home with my kids life would be better right that i would be enjoying life better and things would be more fun but there's definitely a limit kids need time on their own to grow they need their peers um you know as much as i'd love to maximize every single minute and i do trust me i do because i'm well aware that you know in a couple of years when they're 18 i've got two percent of that time left you know and, and I'm going to maximize every bit of it, but you can't force it. You can't squeeze, you can't squeeze orange juice out of a lemon. You gotta, you gotta let it kind of run its course. And, and one of those things is kind of letting your kids have their space and more time doesn't always mean better time. Um, and, and at some point you run out of things to even share or talk about because what did you do today? Well, we, we sat here in front of our computers mm-hmm. and you know, we did, we did school. You were there the whole time. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I was a little conflicted. I thought I'd always love it, but I think I learned a valuable lesson about that, uh, this year and about how it's much more important to have quality time and set an example than it is to worry too much about quantity of time. And that is so interesting because you probably wouldn't have had this opportunity any other way. I mean, the way that it worked out gave you a taste of something you wouldn't have tasted. Absolutely. And I always thought that that's what I wanted, which was interesting. You know, I always was trying to work my way out of having a day job so I could be home and, and experience all these things. And I, and I got to experience it without even getting to that point. And, and it taught me something about myself that maybe that isn't exactly what I really wanted. Um, and, and that's okay. That's kind of what life does to you, right? It, it, it shows you something only to prove to you that that's not exactly what you need or want. And, and that's kind of been my life. My life story is, <laughs> hey, I really want this. And then I get it. And then I realized that isn't the key, you know, to it anyway. And, and so starting to find that out and, and, and learn those lessons is, is so fun. I don't know how much you know about me, but I retired very young. And one of the incentives okay. for me was to be super dad if I wanted yeah, yeah. to be. And for yeah. me, that equated to spending as much time with my kids as possible. Mm-hmm. Time that my dad didn't get to spend with me. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that coin that I'm always conscious of is one of the biggest benefits I got from my dad was seeing how hard he worked. So mm-hmm. when he's gone, yeah. when I wake up and then sometimes doesn't get home until dinner time, almost mm-hmm. always got home at dinner time, if not later, yeah. depending on the time of year, he was yeah, an, oh, account- yeah. an accountant like yourself, right? You're a finance yeah. guy. The first quarter of the, the calendar year, March, April, he was never home before I went to bed. It, it stuck with me, just that work ethic. And yeah. I don't know if I'll be able to demonstrate a superior work ethic to my kids if I'm home all the time and I'm wearing pajamas till noon and things like that. So <laughs> is that something you've yeah. ever considered? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, you know, my dad was a delivery driver growing up, you know, kind of like a FedEx guy. And, and, um, I didn't appreciate this as a kid, but, um, he would work double shifts. He would take 16 hour days to get overtime and he wasn't home. You know, he'd leave before I got up in the morning, he'd be going home after I went to bed sometimes. And, you know, I kind of had this feeling of wishing he was around more. And it wasn't until I was older that I realized he was doing it for us. And he was doing that overtime to pay for us to have a good home and a good suburb and a good schools. And, you know, he was working his ass off. And, and part of the thing that I did kind of subconsciously when I became a parent was 
I'm going to be there more for my kids than my dad was, you know, and I, I think that was something I had to unlearn was, you know, first of all, I had to, I, I, it took me years to understand why he did it, that it wasn't like, didn't want to be around for his kids growing up. He was doing that for us, but also I, I, I made this decision to go so far the opposite way of him that I forgot to set an example for a while for my kids that I thought just being there and being around was enough. And I realized that I learned so much from my dad and watching him work and, and watching him provide for his family. And, and for years, just being the super dad was my goal. I always want to be a stay at home dad. It was sort of always my thing. And I think that was just a reaction to, to my dad not being around and, and um, you know, but my relationship with my dad is better than it's ever been now because I recognize what he did and, you know, he's retired now, but we spend a lot of time and we play some golf and we enjoy life. And, and it was never about not being there for us. It was about going to work to provide. And, and, um, you know, I'm thankful for that. And, and so I'm mindful as I sit in my pajamas till noon for 10 months during a pandemic, you know, that, that, um, I've got some work to do to, to teach my kids the same work ethic that my dad taught me for sure. In fact, I got. I should take. I should take some lessons from my dad because I think I, if there's anything I wish I could do a better job of, is have that work ethic. So when I was a kid, I didn't understand much about money. It was either we could afford something or we couldn't afford something. But mm. the idea of paying for a house or that the mortgage payment might be a thousand dollars or more, completely ignorant of all of that stuff. Yeah. So I do wonder at what point you should start teaching your kids about money. I don't know if it's a function of their age or if it's maturity, like a judgment call that you make when you cross that bridge. Yeah. Have you, have you considered when to, to start teaching your kids about money or when did you, because your kids are older now? Yeah. So I, so first of all, like growing up, my, my parents, worked really hard, you know, and, and, and it was hard to, to make ends meet to provide the life they provided for us. And so the conversation was always about lack, you know, they, they always talked about what they lacked, you know, and, and this isn't a knock on them, but it's just sort of the sign of the times. I think everybody in my neighborhood was the same way, but it was, you know, somebody, a neighbor would get a new car and my parents would be like, man, I wish we could get a new car, you know? And, and so the message I received was always like, we should, we needed more money that we were, you know, we needed material things to be happy. And, and, um, I don't think my parents did that intentionally. It was just kind of the, the nature of where they were in this blue collar setting and sort of grinding your way to a, to a decent living. But so I learned by watching them and I, and I realized that my kids learned by watching me financially direct financial lessons, I think are very difficult on kids. Kids don't really want to listen to that. You have to set it up in a way that that meets them where they are. So I teach lessons through things like allowance. Um, my daughter came to me um, a couple months ago and she wanted a MacBook to you to do homeschooling, to do the virtual school. And I said, well, that's a want, not a need. And I had a tough decision to make. She said, dad, can I borrow the money from you for a MacBook? And then I'll pay you back every month. And I was hesitant because I didn't want to teach them to take on debt, but I also wanted her to see what debt felt like, you know, uh, it was an opportunity for her in a very safe environment to feel what debt was like. And so ultimately I, I lent her the money for a MacBook, and she had to promise to pay me back a hundred bucks a month till it was paid off. And she had to mow lawns or, 
you know, do whatever to make a hundred bucks. And so, so that worked and she did it. She paid it off. And at the end she was like, eh, I didn't really like owing that money. Mm. I didn't really like that. Like I, she, she ended up working it off and paying it off like three months early. Cause she hated it. So I think it taught a lesson. I think there's no point where it's too early. I mean, you know, maybe seven or eight when they can really start to comprehend it. But, you know, I think the lessons can't be direct. Kids don't learn direct. You got to set them up in a, in a situation where they'll take it with them and they got to experience it. So I do that with allowance. I do that with the, with the MacBook thing. I do that with, um, you know, they want a $40 video game. And, but I also very mindful of the way I talk, the words matter. I don't talk about life in, in a sense of lack. Um, I don't talk about things. I talk about, you know, I'm getting a new car because the old one died, you know, and, and so we drive our cars till they die and we get another one. Um, there's no really rush or we don't need a new car. We don't need any of this fancy stuff. You use those opportunities to tell a story. The teaching moments come up. I'm a big proponent as a parent that you can't really plan out how you're going to parent your kids, but you have to be aware of the teaching moments when they come and capitalize. So yesterday with this whole GameStop stuff, my kids come home from school and they go, GameStop, what's going on with GameStop, dad? We heard Mr. Beast on YouTube talking about GameStop. And I said, well, all right what's a short dad? What's a short, you know? So I, I get out the whiteboard and I start telling them what a short on a stock is. And so you just got to jump on those moments. I think if anything, where parents go wrong is they they're too busy or preoccupied with their own stuff to take a moment and recognize the teaching moments when they come. And it might seem like a nuisance, but take the time, the five minutes it takes to sit down and explain something when the moment comes is far worth it compared to whatever you were going to do with that five minutes that, you know, you're kind of annoyed by the kids wanting you to explain something. So jump on it, take the teaching moments and run with it. Cause those are, those, those are where everything comes from. Cause when they're curious, that's when they're going to learn. If you're shoving it in their, in their face, they're not going to learn it. That is such a good point. And it's so good for me to hear at the time that I need to hear it. It's, okay. it's combating laziness to make an investment in your kid's future Mm-hmm. Bad parenting seems to me is almost always laziness mm-hmm. and lack of follow up, like lack of consistency. If you say something, you have to follow up, keep your word, even if it means getting up off your own ass. If you said they're going to be punished, they need to then be punished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the worst parenting is, you know, you can see the empty threats, you know, you're walking through a walmart or something and some kids acting up and some parents like you better knock it off or i'm gonna you know whatever and you know they're not gonna do it because the kid <laughs> yeah. isn't listening mm-hmm. and and so don't don't make threats you can't follow through absolutely like i, I don't make any threats um to my kids i i, I it's not even worth it because 99 percent of the time i'm not gonna follow through so i just don't make <laughs> i just don't make the threat because <laughs> most most threats on kids are a punishment to the parent right like if i gotta enforce a punishment that's work for me and that's a pain in the ass, you know? So I'd rather set up a situation where, you know, the, the, the punishment is already built into the behavior, you know? And thankfully my kids have the respect that I need. So I don't have to do that very often, if ever. So I like what you said too, about making them feel the debt burden. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was a kid, my family also spoke in terms of lack. If somebody got a new car in the neighborhood, it was, must be nice. 
That's what mm-hmm. we heard mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. But when I got older and started making my own money, I was amazed at how it all worked. Like how it's not necessarily that you can't afford it. It's that you don't want to pay for it or figure mm-hmm. it, figure out a way to afford it. And afford it. Yeah, yeah it, it kind of bothered me later in life. Or, you know, another thing that it always bothers me to hear when parents say that they did the best that they could. Well, yeah. while that may be true, did you do anything to try to develop yourself as a parent? Because <laughs> if not, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you did everything that you could. But I don't think the self-development space was as prominent a thing, you know, 30 years ago when our parents were, were bringing us up in the world. No, and, and I don't know if this is true for everybody, but I think you know, we're about the same age. You and I were born, I think you said the same year. So 1980, but, um, you know, our parents grew up with parents that were, um, at least my parents grew up with parents that were kids were best not seen and not heard or best, you know, out of sight, sort of, they weren't, they weren't brought up with very hands-on parents at all. And I, and I think that they did the best that they could with the upbringing they were given. I'm where I am today because my parents improved upon their parents' situation. I don't think self-improvement was a thing. I don't think there was that much self-awareness. I think it was more survival and and get through. And I think we have the luxury of self-improvement in some ways that our parents didn't have because they were, you know, my parents bought the first house and interest rates were 17%. My dad was working double shifts to try and get us into a good school. And, you know, we're at two, 2.99% interest and you know, we can make tens of thousands of dollars on the internet. So we have a little different set of circumstances. And some of that is because of the work that our parents put in, I believe. And, you know, it was a heavy lift. And I think I, you know, I've learned to forgive them for some of the things that they didn't do that they, you know, looking back, I was said I would have done, right. But, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think that they came from much more difficult upbringings, lots of, you know, more kids than they had, smaller homes, you know, more uh, yelling, more sort of chaos, I think, and, and they, they, they made the best of it. Indeed. So you said when we were in high school, we wanted to get good grades. We wanted to attend football games on Friday nights. We looked forward to the college we were going to go to. How are kids different today? Based on what my kids talk about, they're not just like, it's not like going to school with their sights set on getting into a good college and, and going down that path. I mean, that was you and I, we were doing that. That was what it was. It was, their, you know, by the time kids were juniors in high school, it was all about what college you were going to. And, and now they're talking about the latest YouTube videos and, you know, how they can become a social media influencer. And, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just changed so much so fast that those old institutions don't mean much to them. I mean, they still might do it, but it's, it's so non-celebratory, if that makes sense. Like you, you and I, you know, when we were that age, kids were getting excited to get accepted to good colleges. And there was like this big hoopla about it and everybody expected it. And, you know, you better get good grades so you can get into whatever, you know, University of Michigan, go to these places. The kids don't think that way anymore at all. And they don't talk about it that way. And even if they do, it's almost like they hide it if they're trying to go to like a good college or something, they're almost like embarrassed sort of, there's a different feel to it. I think it's evolving very fast. I think it ties into this whole 
GameStop thing that happened. There was also this view that we should always improve on our parents' situation, that every generation, the, the goal was really to be better off than our parents were. And I don't, I don't sense that at all from this next gen that's in school. They're not thinking like, I'm going to go to college and get a better job than my dad had. In fact, they're going, they're like, man, I don't want to go to college and get that same job my dad had. He seemed miserable. Why would I do that? Why would I do that at all? You know? And so I think that's all kind of out the window a little bit. And maybe in certain circles, I think in higher sort of upper class circles, there's probably still that that desire to go to these good schools, like the whole Lori Laughlin thing where she gets, you know, it's laughable, really. My kids think it's funny. Like, why would she go to jail just so she can get her kids into USC? Like, USC isn't even like the greatest <laughs> school. Like, what, why, would, why would that matter so much to somebody that they would risk going to jail to get their kid into some state college, you know? So I, th- I don't think that resonates, except maybe in certain circles, like on um, in the upper class. But uh, I think times have changed, and, and it's fun. You know, they still want to go to football games, and they still want to have some fun. But it's not the same, because that's not their whole life. they got this whole digital world. That's all we had, man. That, like, Friday night was like, if you didn't socialize on Friday night at the football game, your next chance was next Friday. Well, now they can, you know, jump on whatever, Snapchat, and, and be hanging out with their friends in two minutes. So it's just different. There's not that lack of opportunity like we, we had to deal with. Do you think your kids would prefer to communicate on apps like Snapchat rather than meet at Starbucks? No, not really. I think they, they're sensing the limitations of digital life. They just use it as a means now to coordinate that type of real life meetup. You know, so I think they're seeing that. I think there's almost going to be this this sort of backlash against some of the socials amongst that generation. They already think Facebook's stupid and they think Twitter's kind of silly for like dudes like us, but you know, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll find their own way, but I think they, they really do enjoy the face to face more. Um, I tell them about, you know, how we used to go to the malls. Like when we were 14, our parents would drop us off at the shopping mall and we'd walk around and talk to our friends for two hours, three hours and, you know, buy slushies and pretzels and, that was our socializing and they actually kind of think that's cool. They're like, that's, they, they kind of wish that it was like that now really because yeah. kids don't have the space anymore. That's the problem they face is there's, there's no freedom. You know, they're, they have some freedom online and that's why they go online. Cause it's the only place they can go where they're not hovered over, but mm-hmm. parents don't let their kids do anything alone anymore. Um, they don't drop them off too many places and, and they, everybody's always watching them and tracking their phones and, you know, they're really not, they have a really short leash, if any, and and um, they crave that independence. Uh, I think they miss it in some ways, and I'm a little nostalgic about it. We had some pretty good independence back in the 90s, for sure. I'll say. So there's not <laughs> as much unstructured time, I guess, where they can just create their own games. And I mean, it's probably different for your kids because they're a little bit older, but is that what you witnessed where maybe kids were overscheduled and so they didn't yeah, have but- any time to do anything on their own? Absolutely. I mean, we used to, you know, I don't want to sound like the old guy, like we used to walk up and uphill both ways to school, but, you know, we, we would run out in the morning and play hockey in the street and, you know, ride our bikes and, you know, mess around on the railroad tracks and do all kinds of crazy stuff all day, every day. And uh, the kids don't do any of that anymore. It's, it's virtual. They're, they're creating uh, servers on Fortnite and building stuff and playing and, and having a good time. And, and they crave that, but they don't have as much of that anymore, for sure. And it's not even just the structured. I think you know, they're structured and busy, but they're also hovered over 
parents are just very super paranoid now. I mean, I watch kids down the street here, the bus stops like five houses away and the parents like walk the kids down to the bus stop. I'm like, Jesus, man, I, you know, I had to walk three blocks to a bus stop. And the only time my mom walked me was my first day at kindergarten, you know, <laughs> and that, and after that I was on my own and I, I walked to that bus stop every day for, for the next like 10 years. So I think kids crave freedom and they build confidence with freedom. It's an outlet that they need that they're lacking severely, especially now with the pandemic and stuff. Mm-hmm. They've been under their, you know, under the thumb of their parents for 10 months and, and uh, they're going to want to break out from this in a big, big way. <laughs> Watch out. Uh, you can't keep them contained forever. So look out. I heard a guy, I think he was a guest on Rogan saying that he would slip a little note in his kid's pocket and send him off on the subways in New York City. And the note basically would say, if, if some adult stopped him, would say, hey, I'm 11 years old and my, I have my parents' permission mm-hmm. to be doing this. And I thought it was fantastic. That's awesome. Man. Yeah, yeah. I, love, I love it. And free range, I think somebody's coined that phrase, free range parenting. When I was 11, I was riding my bike, you know, mile or two, you know, down to Seven Eleven to get, you know, get a Coke or something. And, you know, it's funny, I, I'm pretty liberal and let my kids do things, but I couldn't even imagine letting my 11 year old go three miles on a bike to a Seven <laughs> Eleven. I'm like, Oh man, there's weird people at Seven Eleven. you know, <laughs> but that wasn't a thing back then. And I don't know if society's changed or we've changed, but uh, I don't think there's going to going back to that anytime soon. Do you think that we'll be able to benefit our kids in that we're the last generation without supercomputers in our pockets at all times, or at least that we have existed in that world? Oh, for sure. I mean, you and I talked about this, you know, you and I are kind of in between. We're not millennials. We're not Gen X. We're like right on the border. You know, I don't really feel Gen X. I don't really feel millennial. I just kind of feel 1980, but we can serve a purpose because we, I didn't have my first cell phone until I was, you know, 19 years old. And I didn't have my first smartphone until I was like 27 or something, you know. So um, I was young enough to get in on it and, and understand it and not be a, t- a tech luddite, I guess. But I was also lived most of my life without it. So, yeah, like you said, I, I think we offer a grounding uh, opportunity because, like, you know, people older than us are like, ah, screw the tech, whatever. You know, I, I had a buddy who was like in his 70s and he, he literally had a flip phone until the day he died. And it was like dude, man, you, you know, you can get a, like a smartphone and text me and stuff, you know, <laughs> that doesn't do anything to the kids. But for us, we've seen both sides of it. And we can bring the, I think we can bring the good parts of our childhood, the eighties and nineties are looking back where the golden age of childhood now. And we can bring pieces of that to these kids and, and kind of tell them and they listen. I mean, it, it sounds silly. Usually kids like roll their eyes when a dad tells a story about when he's a kid, but there's something about the eighties and nineties that the kids, they, they get, wrapped up in it they want to hear they want to know what that was like to Mm. you know ride your bike all day and mess around with friends and you know just do random crap and and there's something that they want and we can provide and we can ground them and i think we have an opportunity to lead at this point uh especially now i i feel like that the field's wide open and looking for leaders and we're at that spot where we can lead more our kids we can lead in general at the age that we're at, because we aren't really stuck in any one generation. I think that's going to play to our advantage. You're right. I think that's a great observation. So at what yeah. age did your kids start lobbying for smartphones? Oh, God. Um, geez, they had them in their hands just about when they were two. But I ended up giving them smartphones around 10 
they wanted smartphones from the time they were about eight or so. I'm kind of early compared to most. I just think that that's the, the way of life and that's tech and that's just part of human existence now. And so, you know, I monitor and, and keep a tight, tight control on it, but um, you know, I let them have it. They started wanting it about eight and I gave it to them about 10, mm. I suppose. And yeah. do you do without technology on Sunday? Did I read that right? I do like a screen-free Sundays. Yeah. Oh, nice. And is that for all of you or just you? Yeah, it's for all of us. You know, we, we sometimes I say screen-free till three is my little thing. <laughs> you know, like we get up and we have some breakfast. We go out for a family hike or something. And then, you know, we get back. It's like 3 p.m. I, uh, we, we go back to some. But some days in the summer and stuff, especially, we go screen-free the whole day. Except for, you know, I'm not like crazy about it. We, we'll watch a movie together or we'll flip on a football game or something. But I, it's like internet-free. We're not going on socials. We're not doing any of that. We're not playing games. Um, we can watch a movie or, or a game together. But uh, so it's pretty fun. It's been pretty great. I think um, I want to do more of it. Um, I'd, I'd like to expand it beyond one day sometimes. Yeah. And um, they don't hate you for it? Well, they grumble about it for sure. But uh, once we start doing stuff, they actually end up really enjoying it. Once we leave the house in the morning and, and head out without the phones, um, they really open up and, and they have a blast. They don't complain later on. People who join me on the podcast, younger people especially, I think say that they enjoy it so much because it is so, it's such an immersive experience. There aren't many opportunities in life for them to be completely screen free and just yeah. focused on a conversation because I've been mm -hmm. to coffee with young guys who will mid conversation be texting while no. they're talking to me. And I, oh, I can't yeah. believe that yeah. they're doing that. They don't <laughs> see it as rude. Yeah. They don't say anything. And I'm like, how could I, yeah, it just boggles my mind, but. Well, our, I mean, our, our attention spans, that's a big focus of mine this year is to regain kind of reclaim my attention span, right? Like, I don't know if this happened to you, but I'll sit down and watch a movie and 10 minutes into the movie, I, I'm like unconsciously reaching for my phone. I'm like, shit, I can't even, I can't even watch a whole movie anymore without feeling the pull of going online or going on Twitter or whatever. I'm like, man, what happened to my attention span? Just, I want this back. I want to be able to just watch a movie and immerse myself. And, and like you said, immerse is the great word. I want to immerse myself in experiences that are not dependent on digital stuff, you know, like I just want some, uh, it's almost like there's this luxury feel to analog. Like I'm sitting here right now. I've got this, I've got an LP of Pearl Jam, mm -hmm. like a full album over here. You know, like I bought, I bought a bunch of LPs. My girlfriend bought me some records for Christmas. I've got a record player over here. You know, there's something to be said about immersing yourself and listening to like an album on a record player versus streaming unlimited choices, flipping around, jumping around, blah, blah, blah. I think people are going to crave that sort of experience. That's the novelty, right? Like it used to be the phones were the novelty. Well, now it's the opposite. The analog world is the novelty. Um, being able to experience something without screens, I just, I think that's going to be the new thing down the road. It's going to be like, man, how much freedom do you have from technology will be the new luxury. I think you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, I dream about a day where I go, I got a cabin up in Northern Michigan with uh, off the grid and then go up there for a couple of days and, and not hear anything about the outside world, build a fire and read a book. I mean, was, these are things I daydream about. I've got all the, I got a supercomputer in my hand and I'm daydreaming about a fire in the woods. 
So <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's hard, man. I yeah. if you're watching Netflix with someone and they're on their phone, it's distracting to me. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think as a collective, we've got to say, hey, are we going to watch Ozark? Are we going to put our phones in the other room? Like it has to be an agreement because yeah. it's distracting. Yeah. But yeah, I know I people it. that will watch the TV over their phone. Oh, I can't. I can't. I mean, I'll put on a ball game or something and then I'll scroll on the phone. But, you know, I'm kind of half paying attention. But yeah, collectively, um, like tonight I was watching um, a show on Netflix with my kids and my daughter. I looked over. We, I was laughing at a part of the show and I looked over to, for that sort of collective laugh. And she was looking at her phone. I was so mm. bummed. I was like. I was like, oh man, you didn't even see what I was laughing about. You know, like you were not paying attention. I'm like, forget it. I turned it off. You know, we're, we're not, we're just not, you got to be in it. Like we do Friday movie nights. My kids hate it. I call it forced family fun. <laughs> uh, whenever, I, whenever I make them do something as a family. So Friday nights, we have Friday movie nights where, you know, eight o'clock, we put all our phones away. We make some popcorn, we turn off all the lights and we watch a movie and that's it. You're not allowed to do anything else, but watch the movie. There's no phones. There's nothing they grumble a little bit, but every time they end up loving it, you know, and we get into it. And so, so we do that a couple, I try to keep traditions. I think that's important for, for families is to have traditions. So Friday night, movie night, screen free Sundays, you know, sometimes we do, we got away from this during the pandemic because we were sick of each other, but like <laughs> Tuesday night, Tuesday nights, we would do game nights where we would play like a board game or something. And, um, you know, having those little traditions means a lot to kids. It might not seem like much and they might grumble about it, but, um, I think those are important. That mutual laugh you, you mentioned is key, mm-hmm. right? That's the whole reason yeah. that you watch a ball game or a funny right. movie with someone is so that yeah. you can get that joint laughter going. And if, Absolutely. if, yeah, if they miss that, oh, it's, that's oh, bad. I can't stand it's, it when people are on their phone when, you, when you're doing something collectively like that. You know? yeah. And back, back when we could go to sporting events, you know, you go to sporting events with somebody live in person, and they're scrolling their phone the whole time. Like, man, you're, you're at a ball game. You know, you can do that anytime. For all that tech has brought us, like I said before, I think that the analog world is going to make a comeback. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's going to be uncool to be on your phone all the time. And, and yeah, I, I think you're totally right. My kids like make fun of, you know, their grandma, my mom, you know, because she'll like every time there's a notification on her phone, she's in her sixties, you know, she'll like immediately like, Oh, I got to look, you know? And even my kids who grew up with phones, like they know not to like, you don't have to rush to every notification, you know, you can like put it down and you can go look at it later. That's the whole point, you know, but there's, they, they almost like laugh at it sort of like grandma, you don't have to check that. It's okay. Yeah. Well, listeners are going to get tired of me saying this, but I don't understand why anybody would have notifications on their phones. I don't even have text message <laughs> yeah, notifications. Yeah. I have to go oh, yeah. and check to see if somebody texted me. My friends yeah, will yeah. get over it. Or at least, you know, my best friends, they know that I'm that way. So if I don't reply within 10 minutes, they know that, well, I haven't checked my text messages. So. Oh, that's huge. I, I turn them all off. The only thing I wish they had a feature on the Apple phone was I want to turn off notifications except for texts from my kids. Mm. So if my, you know, like I would turn off all text notifications if I could get theirs and nobody else's. So I so, do this with my wife. We use yeah. WhatsApp to text and that's okay. the only one I get right away. Okay. Oh, see, I see. That's the only one that's turned on. Yeah. I got to do that. Something like that. So I don't, I can just get theirs. I have everything else off except the text. Mm. And I'm so annoyed when it's like some spam 
uh, somebody selling me something when I interrupted whatever I'm doing to look and uh, see it some some ad or something. But uh, yeah, I, I think there's this movement and it, it's not as I don't see much about it anymore. But a couple of years ago, there was a lot of people looking to like downgrade their phones. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was even like a, a GoFundMe or, a, or um, what's the other one, the uh, Indiegogo or whatever, mm-hmm. where they were developing like a little phone, like a tiny phone that was like, you know, two inches big. And you, all it would do was call and text and it did nothing else. Right. And so you could like slide it in your pocket, not even notice it and still be able to keep in touch if you needed to. But you could be free of all the smartphone apps and all the temptations and everything. I wonder what ever happened to that. I guess it didn't take off, but I, I kind of crave that sometimes, you know, like I wish I could just, I bought an Apple watch once because I thought silly me, I thought I could just wear the watch and not bring my phone with me so I could still be in touch with my kids, but not have my phone. But that was, that just ended up being more of an, you know, more pe- people being able to bug me at all times on my wrist than, <laughs> than anything. But uh, yeah, I think we all crave something. Well, speaking of rudeness and technology, what about the thing now where people turn their wrist to look at their watch because they've gotten a text, but it's, mm. it's reminiscent of 20 years ago. If, if you were telling somebody something and they're in mid-conversation just looking at the time, that would be like the ultimate rude thing you could possibly yeah, do, right? Rude. Yeah, it's like, when rude. is yeah. this conversation going to be over with? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're just getting yeah. a, a notification from Instagram oh. or Facebook or whatever it is. Oh. The biggest way that I have succumbed to technology, I believe, is I still buy books at the same rate at which I bought them 10, 12 years ago. So I'm I'm an avid reader. I go through a lot of books, but I don't read as much as I used to because I'm reading things online. And so it's very much cut into my book reading time. (laughs) And I need to get better about that. But I've heard people like Sam Harris say that they don't read as much because they spend so much time on Twitter and different apps. But you're, if you're oh. a content creator, you have to be on these apps, right? Well, I mean, it, it, it's sort of a double-edged sword, I guess. Like for me, I've built a huge following on by wasting time on Twitter, basically, and uh, shooting my, you know, my thoughts out and tweets when I'm bored. You know, but at the same time, like the other day, I went and got my car service at the dealership. And so I pull in there and I hand them the keys and I've got like two hours to sit around and wait. And I decided to challenge myself. I took Twitter off my phone and I brought a regular hardcover book with me. Mm-hmm. And I just sat there and I read the book instead of reaching for my phone. Now, to be fair, I was like, like my mind wanted to reach for my phone every five minutes, but I kept, I fought it and I just sat there and I read my book the whole time. And at some point I looked up and looked around the waiting room at the dealership and everybody was scrolling their phone. And it also hit me that the amount of time I spent on Twitter, I probably could have read like 500 books by now easily, yeah. but I've gained a lot from Twitter. So I'm not saying that that's, that's the way either, because I think we all, I mean, we wouldn't be talking to each other if it wasn't for Twitter. So I, I, I'm not one to put technology into this bad bucket by any means, but uh, I think some balance, like you said about our generation and people who grew up without the tech, we can provide the balance and help people find the balance between the tech and the, and the analog world. And there has to be some, and, and you can self-regulate over time. After a while, you kind of figure out, and I've been on Twitter too much. I need to take a break. 
October 1st, 2007 was my first day at a new job working for a, a small startup. And that morning, the guy who hired me, he was my boss's boss, didn't show up to work that day. And everybody was like, mm. where's, where's he at? Where's he at? Everybody's screen was on cron.com, which is the Houston Chronicle website, mm. local newspaper. He was on the Beltway, which is a major highway in Houston, and hit a cop and killed him. The cop oh, had somebody God. pulled over oh, he was on his Blackberry and ran the guy over and killed him. Oh, he so no. happened to live about, I don't know, less than a mile away from my house, which in Houston, that's saying yeah. something, right? So we drive yeah. into downtown to go to work. Yeah. So he needed a ride home. He was scared to drive for a very long time. Understandable, yeah. right? Yeah, well, yeah. as we would drive home on the interstate, every car that passed by, he was like Rain Man, like, look, he's on his phone. Look, that guy's on his phone. Yeah, that guy, yeah. that guy, that yeah. guy. And he was right. This was November 2007. And it was this new phenomenon where every single driver was on their phone. And it was something that I had never really paid attention to before. But you're right. We all feel that little itch to grab our phone in any idle moment that we have. Oh, and yeah. it's weird now to think that I used to show up to the gym. One of the reasons my wife and I hit it off was because she worked the, the front desk at the gym and she would ask me what I was reading. I would come in with a book underneath my arm. And mm -hmm. I always had this thing where I, I strongly believe like the once you go black thing. So I resisted HD TV for a long time. I resisted mm -hmm. wearing earphones while I'm working mm -hmm. out. I've always been an analog type of or slow to adapt to technology just because I know once you go to it, you'll never go back. I rarely go on a walk now without my AirPods because I feel like, well, I could yeah. be learning yeah. something through a podcast yeah, or an yeah. audio book or whatever. Yeah. So one of the things that I think makes you a great writer is, well, probably three things if I really thought about it. But one, you're relatable, right? If someone were to ask me, who is your favorite Twitter follow in terms of relatability, it, mm -hmm. you're probably the, the guy I would point to. Secondly, you have an ability to extract more from the mundane than most people, which is kind of like a, a quality that real good comedians have where yeah. they can observe things in everyday life that the rest of us don't see. And then they speak something, some truism about what we all experienced. And it's hilarious. Like, why didn't I yeah, do yeah. that? And then thirdly, I would say you're taking what average and even what good writers mostly overlook in order to compose words and sentences that provide value to us, your readers. When did you identify that you had this skill set? Hmm. Great question. I, I don't know if I still believe it. Uh, I... I have always been able to put things into words that others struggle to put into words and not necessarily written, but just I've been able to sit back and watch and observe a situation and then summarize it. So somebody once said, Mark, you're sort of the voice of a movement in the sense that you sit back, you watch, you observe, you collect thoughts, and then you summarize and, and share the, the bottom line you know, for what that is. And so I think I've always had that once. So I gave the eulogy at my grandmother's funeral when I was about 24. And after I gave the eulogy, 
I, and I, I, I had no help or anything. I just gave the speech. I went up there. I was nervous. You know, we're at the funeral home and, you know, dozens of people sitting there and I'm 24 and kind of a kid still. And I get up and give this speech about my grandmother who it was a difficult speech to give because not a lot of people knew her. She was pretty quiet and, you know, it was hard to give a speech about somebody that, um, you know, didn't have a lot of outwardly easy things to talk about. And so I gave the speech and afterward the, the priest came, comes up to me and he goes, you have a talent, you have a, um, a way with words that's going to be really important someday. Um, you're, it's going to take you places. I just wanted you to know that. And I think about that a lot because the words we tell people, the things we tell people, the, the compliments we give them mean a lot. And that meant a lot to me because I think I always sensed it, that I had some sort of way with words that, could, that I could break things down and make them relate to people. But when he, once he said that, I believed it. You know, I didn't do anything with it, <laughs> of course, for a while. But uh, I started over the years, that was, what, 16, 17 years ago. And I've started to, you know, over time, build more confidence. And, and But I think about that often. And then when you say things like that and other people, when I write things, like I wrote an article, two articles for Hyperion Magazine recently that got um, tons of, of attention and, and uh, accolades. And so, you know, you, you start to build it, you start to build confidence. And, and that's where I'm at now is finally, I mean, I'm 40 years old, almost 41. And, I, and I knew, I've known I've had this ability and this talent. Uh, but only really now starting to believe it and starting to put it into, into practice and, and use it um, uh, to do good. Excellent. I've read those Hyperion magazine articles. They're very yeah. well written, very well structured. Where, so one of the things I pay attention to as an amateur writer myself is where you decide to stop paragraphs and start the next one is real. It's everything is just really crisp and well articulated. Mm. <laughs> it's uh, impressive, and I th I think clear writing is indicative of clear thinking, which you probably yeah. experience a lot of too. Yeah, I so let me tell you a little secret about that. People who you know have to bust their ass to write won't like this, but I wrote both of those articles in one sitting, in one draft in less than an hour wow. each one um i just i can't i can't write like the people like the books tell you to write or the the you know videos or the how to write i can't do it i can't write out in in a structure that's been predetermined for me i have to sit down in the mood in the mode of what i'm writing about and just write it and it comes out that way and i i, I other than a few spelling mistakes i don't edit i don't do anything that just that just comes out that way and so that's just my thinking the best writing i can do is literally the words through my head come out onto the paper and, and it comes out as if i'm speaking to somebody or trying to make a point to somebody and, and so i'm thankful for that because i know that's not something that everybody uh can do i'm thankful that i can do that um on the flip side that makes it a little harder because I don't follow them, the, you know, a methodical way of writing. And so creating consistent content that way, isn't that easy. I kind of have to wait for the right, it has to be something I truly believe in and it has to be the right platform and then I can write it. Um, so that's something I need to work on over time is, is being more consistent with content creation versus just doing it when the, when the mood strikes. 
but I can't, to this day, I can't force it. They do say that the stuff that's easier to write will be better appreciated by the reader. And I've noticed that about myself. The, the posts that I write that get the most readers or the most views, they're the ones that didn't take me very long to write. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's something to be said for that. Most people don't know this. I haven't shared this too often, but I've written two books and scrapped them. Two different books. Wow. Like you know, tens of thousands of words. And they were finance books. And they were like, you know, how to save money, how to get ahead, whatever. I hated it. I hated it. Every, every bit of it. I wrote it. It was very, I forced myself to get up every morning and write 500 to 1,000 words, put them on paper, you know, because that was what people said. You know, if you get up and force yourself and create the habit and do discipline, you're going to get there, you know. And I wrote two books and they were terrible. I hated them. I couldn't, I would never, I think if I have a book in me, it's going to be where I go to a cabin some weekend and I write the whole book <laughs> in 48 hours because getting up every morning and forcing 500 to a thousand words out of me was, I did not like that at all. And the, the writing reflected it. The writing felt painful. Wow. It felt like force. So it's different for everybody. And I'm not, I would never tell people how to write because it's sort of like Tiger Woods telling people how to golf, right? Like he just knows how he was two years old and he was hitting the golf ball better than most 40 year old men. So, um, I have a way of writing and a way with words that just comes to me and it's my voice and, and it's unique to me. And there's not, I don't think there's anything I could do to try to extrapolate that to someone else. Surely yeah. you were able to repurpose some of the content though, right? Uh, a little bit, you know, not. it wasn't all for nothing, but you know, I, I did some Twitter threads on it, but you know, I, it's there if I need it. I've got it saved in a Google Doc, I guess. I can always go back to it if I have to, but no, it wasn't what I wanted. It, you know, what I want to do is tell stories. And 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 like you said, I, I absolutely love talking and bringing life to the mundane. You know, I could write a thousand words about the house plant in front of me right now if, if, if you wanted me to, probably more so than I could write a thousand words about the next you know, big mutual fund investment that needs to happen or whatever, you know, like this record, these records, man, I could tell you stories about these, you know, I got the records from, from my girlfriend for Christmas and my dad gave me the record player over there in the corner. And we used to sit around and, and listen to that record player when I was a kid. I mean, there's like stories everywhere and those are what's fun. And that's what people resonate with. And that's yeah. what people listen to. They don't want to hear about, you know, here's how you can get 6% return on your investments or whatever so no not not ever again do you remember the first thing you wrote for public consumption oh i've had a couple of blogs over the years talking about parenting and and divorce and and different things that i've had go on in my life um but actually the first thing i was a writer for the school newspaper when i was in high school i wrote articles about i would cover sporting events and go and and write an article and that was one of the first times I really felt like, Hey, I've got a knack for this because everybody would write very methodical articles about, you know, so-and-so scored a goal. I really enjoyed capturing the scene, uh, you know, there and, and the mood and everything. So, yeah, I think the first thing for public consumption was the high school newspaper. <laughs> and so from there you go into accounting, is that right? Uh, yeah. You know, don't even get me started on this. So 
um, going into accounting was completely by accident. I, I went to college to help people with their finances. I, I had a mentor when I was 18 years old who got me big into the stock market and got me into investing. And, and I really had a, a passion for helping people save money. I felt like if I could help people get their financial house in order, like I talked about before, growing up in a household where we talked about lack, uh, there was a lot of feeling of lack that I felt like if I could eliminate that feeling of lack that people had, that I could help their lives be better. And so I went into finance. I got a finance degree in college. And I, my whole goal was always to help people with money. I just happened to get, they forced you to take an internship in college. And so my junior year of college, they placed me in an internship as an accountant. Even though it was a finance degree, they said, oh, well, this is all we got. So they put me in an account as an accountant at a, at a big company and I was good at it. You know, it, it just came easy to me. And, um, and, and so when I graduated college, they said, do you want to stick around and be a full-time accountant here? We'll pay you, you know, 50 grand a year. And back then to me, that was like, Oh shit, 50 grand a year, man. I'm going to, I'm going to be rolling in 50 grand. I can buy a house and a car and, you know, went from a kid making 10 bucks an hour to making 50 grand a year in like three months. So, sure. Why not? And that treadmill started. I bought a house. I bought a car. I got married. I had kids. Next thing I knew, I couldn't quit the accounting job because my whole world depended on the income from that accounting job. And so um, I ended up in accounting completely by accident, completely unintended. And uh, before I knew what happened, I was stuck in, in that career. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, once you get far enough down there, you know, you're making 60, 70, whatever, you're making more money. And you need all that money to pay the bills. And if you go switch careers, you're going to go back to 50 or 40 and you can't pay the bills anymore. So you're stuck. Yeah. You know, so it's so easy did, to get down that path. Did your wife work? Yeah, she, she was a teacher. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you marry your college sweetheart or? Yep. Yep. We met in college and she became a teacher. I became an accountant, you know, uh, really on, on the surface, we kind of did what everybody does, which in hindsight was kind of a terrible way of doing it because we had two incomes. We were 24 years old, newlyweds with two incomes that were like close to a hundred K when you put them together, no kids and no responsibilities and no expenses. And, and what did we do? And we spent it all. We spent it all. We, we bought a fancy house in the suburbs. we leased two brand new cars. We went to Alaska for our honeymoon. I mean, we did it. We did everything that the financial blogs and everybody would tell you not to do. We did it. We did it anyway, you know, but that's pretty typical. We did pretty much what most people would do. Like it was like a party. And next thing you know, we look up, we've got three kids. We're paying more in daycare than our house payment. We're just trying to scrape things together. So um, that was a wild time, but we made a lot of mistakes for sure. And part of what I do on Twitter and in, in my newsletter and everything is to warn people, man, I've made some mistakes and, and, and they happen, you know, um, and you don't have to make the same mistakes that I did. And mine seemed very innocent at the time because nobody was telling us not to do those things. Nobody was saying, don't buy that house or don't take that nice honeymoon. They were like, yo, you only live once, do it, <laughs> go for it. You know, you can afford it. You got two incomes and you can lease brand new cars and life's been a wild ride ever since though. It hasn't slowed down. And so you got, full custody of your kids? Uh, no, we do 50, 50, you know, they're, they're around, they lived just a block away from me with their mom. So they're, uh, they're around all the time. 
Um, we do 50-50, but I see him almost every day. So It must have been scary awesome. for you as an introvert to become single after not having dated for a while. Are you yeah. dating now? Yeah, I, I've got a girlfriend. She's great. Um, we've been together seven years. It's a great story. When I first got divorced, yeah, the dating world was scary. And then, I, and, and, you know, when I got married, we, it was my high school sweetheart. And then, you know, 10 years, I'd been with her for 13 years. So all of a sudden, I, I, I'm on the dating scene and I'm 33 years old. And there's this whole new thing called the internet that didn't exist the last time I dated. Um, there's smartphones, there's dating apps, there's Match, there's Tinder, there's eHarmony, whatever. And man, I was like, I was just in a, in a crazy world at 33. And I did some internet dating. I dated some people and, and, and did some online stuff. And, but, you know, at some point I realized, man, my kids are just going to be, I dated a woman who was great, but on the, you know, two weeks into it, she was like, do you always spend this much time with your kids? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, uh, yeah. And, uh, that's probably just you asking that tells me everything I need to know. Um, you know, so I kind of gave up dating uh, at that point. I did. I really did. I was like, man, I just got to focus on my kids and do what's right. And then I was in the grocery store one day with my kids buying school supplies. And all of a sudden I start making small talk with this woman and find out she's got three kids. I've got three kids. They're all the same age. She's divorced, same time as me. We hit it off and we've been dating for seven years since. And so uh, it's been a good ride. She's been a good partner through this. That's excellent. No talk of, uh, yeah. of marriage? No, we got our own lives with three kids and, and we see each other when we can. And, and uh, it's pretty perfect, to be honest. It's, uh, we, we like to joke. We, we say it's kind of special in the sense that we kind of renew our relationship every two weeks when our kids are gone for the weekend. <laughs> um, and and we, we continue to want to renew it every two weeks for seven years. So it must be pretty, pretty special. Why mess with that? Yeah, I wouldn't mess um, with that good thing. No, we're not going to mess with it. It's a good thing. You know, someday when the kids are grown, grown and gone, maybe we'll cross that, that bridge. But uh, for the, in the meantime, man, it's, it's good just the way it is. Now, is she on Twitter? She's not on Twitter, no. <laughs> no, I was telling you earlier, like, I, you know, I have a great day on Twitter and I talk to her on the phone at night. And I, can't, I can't even tell her anything about it because she doesn't understand the memes or anything. <laughs> I can say, hey, honey, I had a great day on Twitter today. She'd be like, what <laughs> what are you she's she is not on twitter she has no interest in twitter i keep her completely uh, out of it you know i tell you i mean she knows i've got this big following but she doesn't even care she doesn't even look so mm. okay so i want to talk politics with you because you were in the hot spot of it all in michigan right so yeah yeah you were in the in the news a lot it seemed like when the lockdown started because governor whitmer seemed to be all about lockdowns Oh, yeah. Then it came out that her husband was not abiding by the lockdowns. She was back in the news. And then a group tried to kidnap her back in the news. Did you think because of Whitmer that Trump would win Michigan in a landslide? Um, You know, I I don't think I ever thought he would win in a landslide. I, I think I thought he would win again here because of that sentiment at one point i'd say probably two months before the election i thought he would win here um but that dwindled pretty quickly after the after the first debate i thought 
nah, <laughs> that, I don't, that, that debate, you know, I don't want to get too political, but man, that debate really sunk a lot of people's opinion of him. They were tuning in looking for a reason to vote for him. And, and he, he really did not shine. And so, yeah, I thought he had a chance. I thought he would still win it. Um, even leading up to it, I thought he had a chance, but I knew it'd be close. You know, there's a lot of, for all the anti-Whitmer sentiment, um, she's got like a 70% approval rating. So I think part of it is just thinking outside our little bubble of people who, who don't really like what she's doing and seeing that in general, the general public seems to appreciate her leadership, even if like it totally turns us off. Uh, it, it, it's what the, it's what they're looking for, you know? So uh, that was a wake up call for me to realize that not everything happens in this little bubble, like especially this Twitter bubble where things tend to be sort of skewed. The general public was looking for a leader to, to tell them what to do and, and kind of guide them through this pandemic. And she did that. Mm. Um, you know, so I got to give her credit for that. I didn't like any of it. Uh, I'll complain about it till, till the end. We're still locked down. We still have restaurants open and, uh, there's still no restaurants, not till February 1st, they can open 25% capacity. So, um, it's wild and, and kids can't play sports and, and, but, it's disheartening in the sense that I'm starting to feel like I'm the only one that's mad about that (laughs) anymore. So I don't say anything because people just in general seem very, a lot of apathy has set in. I don't know if people just kind of given up or quit fighting or or what it is, but uh, in general, the sentiment is not to fight that. And I, and I, and when I raise that opinion or, or express that opinion, people in general, there's some backlash and, and it's almost not worth it. And so I'm sad a little bit. I, I don't know where to go. I don't know where to go from here. I, I think that our state is in trouble from that. And, and um, yeah, the, the, the kidnapping thing, I didn't follow that too closely, but that was unfortunate. I, I, um, there's some crazy people. I'll tell you a little story, like my subdivision here, we um, we're an HOA and by the way, never move into a sub with an HOA <laughs> if, you, if you can help it. But I did, um, you know, 14 years ago and I'm stuck here, but you know, the election's been, was 86 days ago and there's still people with Trump signs all over their yards and flags. And, you know, the HOA put something out and said, you know, it's 86 days since the election. It's probably time to, to put those signs away. Let's just kind of move on and, and, and be done with that, man. People are mad. Don't tell me to take my signs down. Don't tell me what to do. So there's definitely some of that sentiment i don't know if it's misguided or or where we go from here but man there's still a lot of anger uh, about some of that it's very fractured though I, I feel like it's some of it's at whitmer some of it's at you know the election some of it's at whatever the pandemic the jobs it feels like we're kind of just going to be picking up the pieces for a while mm-hmm. apathy is a good word i'm sure there's yeah. apathy mixed with anger mixed with I mean, if you sincerely believe that votes were flipped in the machines, in the voting machines, yeah. then you're going to be pretty damn angry. Is, mm. is that the sentiment among many people there? Is that votes were tampered with or the machines were tampered with? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what happened. I think I didn't give enough credit to how far this sort of uh, QAnon conspiracy theory sort of reached. 
it went far and it, and I, I didn't give it credit. I thought it was just sort of a Twitter thing. Sometimes these Twitter things never leave Twitter. Right. And you think you sound like a crazy person talking about it to normal people, but this is like the opposite. Like Twitter's moved on from the election fraud and the, you know, the, the Trump talk, but the, the, the people here in my neighborhood have not. And so I'm, I'm just totally blown away. I don't know what's happened. It's like the flip, it's like the script has been flipped and they believe that the election was stolen and, you know, that if they leave their Trump signs out for a little longer, they're showing their support and they're showing their, their, their love for, for him and, and their loyalty and that things are all going to work out in the end. And, and I don't know what kind of movie they're watching, but um, it's not the same one I'm watching. And I kind of feel bad. I think so many people got wrapped up in this stuff. I don't know. I can I could never tell you, I don't, I don't have any evidence in front of me that says that there was fraud um, like outright, like votes being stolen or anything, you know, but um, if you had to ask my personal take is that, you know, the Democrats capitalized on the mail-in voting. I mean, you got to hand it to them. They, they use COVID as a, as a gateway to open up mail-in voting to everybody. And then they went door to door and they got people to fill out ballots. And, you know, it seems like to me, it was probably all within, it's all legitimate, but they just capitalized on that shift. And it was just the demographics were set up to cap to, to help them if that was the way. And they, they recognized it. I got to give them credit. They recognized it and they took advantage of it and they won. And outright, cons- I think outright fraud and conspiracy is kind of a big claim without any, anything to back it up. So I'm not going to go there. I, you know, present me with the burden of proof is on you if you're going to claim there's full out fraud in the election. So I'm not discounting anybody's opinions, but I think people got caught up in, in that Q stuff. And, and I just, am amazed how far it reached. It's, it's kind of scary how far it went. I thought it was just Twitter people, you know, because conspiracy theories in the past have, haven't got too far beyond Twitter, but this one went way beyond. Yeah. What was the scandal surrounding certifying the election in Michigan? I don't know if there was a scandal. Um, well, okay, so there was like some, some board, some board that certifies the election has like three committee members and they have to vote to certify and I guess two of them voted yes. And one of them claimed that they were bullied into voting yes or something like that. And they ended up coming back later and saying, no, it was, it was all fine. I, I don't really know. That was just in one precinct in Michigan, though. It wasn't like a widespread thing. It was just one precinct in Detroit where board members felt pressured into it or something. I, I couldn't tell you, but that, it ended up being a nothing sort of thing. So you mentioned earlier that new leaders will emerge from all this coronavirus yeah. chaos. Who, who are those leaders? Like Tulsi Gabbard, you see as being a, a leader of the oh, future? Absolutely. Tulsi Gabbard is my favorite politician by far. I'm, I'm all in Tulsi 2024, 2028, whatever it takes. She's fantastic. And she's this sort of left center politician that lines up with, if people gave her a chance to speak, lines up with a huge majority of the American public. You know, when you talk to general people, you know, some people have fairly far out extreme views, but if you talk to most people, they'll tell you like, yeah, I'm fairly like fiscally conservative and socially liberal. People want to do their thing, let them do their thing. I'm not going to get all caught up in these social issues. And, but I also think the government should kind of keep its distance and be as small as possible and spend as little money, have my money as possible. And, and I mean, she checks all the boxes. She's, she's a, a, a veteran, um, you know, been in the armed services. She's been in Congress. She's a strong female figure. I mean, she's about everything you'd want in a, 
in um, a candidate. So I hope to see her do well. Uh, unfortunately, she doesn't fit the the mold of the establishment, and they have not given her a chance yet. But there's a new there's a new crowd. Like I said, the leadership, uh, David Portnoy, the um, barstool guy who met with Trump, interviewed Trump uh, a couple months back. I mean, he's on the radar for sure. He's independently wealthy now. Sold barstool for like seven hundred million bucks or something. He's got nothing but time and and a platform, and, and he's not afraid. Uh, so look for him to be a leader. Elon Musk is is a leader in this new movement. He's been for a while, but he's getting a new voice. He seems to be getting more confident in commenting on more political things. Uh, Joe Rogan is the platform um, going forward for sure. Tulsi was just on there the other day. Naval uh, Ravikant, he's, he's been a leader for a while, but I think he's even pivoting. He, would, he used to be afraid to touch political things, and now he's all over them. There's all these different people kind of emerging. And uh, now that the Trump shadow has gone, you're seeing them come front and center. And, and it's, it's really fun to watch. There's so many of them. There's probably so many that haven't even really come to, come to the forefront yet, but, but we'll see. Yeah, the Rogan thing interests me because he supposedly has tens of millions of downloads a month. Yeah. But if that's the case, and he was talking quite a bit of shit about Biden – before the election yeah. saying that he was a dying flashlight in the woods. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how that didn't have more impact on the election. Mm. I think that we still overestimate or underestimate how much normal people rely on mainstream media. Mm. You know, I, I think that those tens of millions of people who listen to Rogan, I bet if you were to poll them, they're already probably fairly on the conservative side he does reach both sides, but, but um, I think people don't really listen to Rogan for his political opinions. <laughs> they listen to him because he's entertaining and he brings on guests that are entertaining and he's not afraid to bring on guests that are a little bit controversial and people want to hear that. The votes that swing an election are not dudes listening to Rogan. Um, the votes that swing an election are suburban middle-class moms who watch the the local NBC news mm. and uh, scroll Facebook. Well, that's been shown both elections, 16 and 20, that that demographic um, swung both of those elections. You know, there's a local suburb here in Detroit, St. Clair Shores, which they say is sort of the litmus test for the country. It's a blue collar, middle class you know, neighborhood. And in 16, it went for Trump for the first time. It went red for the first time in decades. And then it went back blue again uh, for Biden. And so there's a certain demographic that just it, it swings both ways and, and we can't do much about it. Portnoy is interesting because yeah. of what you said, him being independently wealthy. I think Trump has opened the door for anybody believing that they can get into politics and maybe win the presidency. You're right. He's bold. He's making emotional connection with people individually right now which is really powerful through the barstool yeah. fund he's yeah. probably learning a lot about raising funds oh yeah you're yeah. right he's somebody to watch oh, out for i watch him he's got nothing nothing to lose and he connects and he's bold enough yeah you got to be bold now i mean there's no we're done with the days like biden biden only won because he was not trump um but he's the last politician we will ever see in my opinion that is timid and sort of sort of uh, milk toast sort of 
old school politician that that won't fly next time. There's no way that wins next time because the two candidates that come up next time will be nothing like that. <laughs> and uh, probably forever, Trump broke that mold. I think it was the Trump ban that brought people like Naval Ravikant over to politics. Seeing Parler get removed from the internet yeah, oh yeah. probably mm-hmm. got people like Naval into politics. Oh and of yeah. course, his buddy Scott Adams has been into politics for a while. He remains yeah. relevant even post-election. Yeah. Those guys, I think the, the, the Twitter, the censoring thing woke a lot of people up. You know, I think even people who don't like Trump, you know, there was plenty of people cheering the, the, the censoring of Trump. But there was a lot of people in that margin who were like, wait, wait a second. If we can just silence the president of the United States of America with a few clicks, then this might not be a good precedent that we should be setting. I think some of those same people are the ones involved in this Reddit uh, GameStop thing. I think you're going to see so much overlap. And so the you know last thing I say about politics is I think I've been saying a long time that the far left and the far right have a lot more in common than they think. They both tend to be anti-establishment, anti you know old school DC politics, and they're finding common ground now. Um, that's what made today so wonderful was that a lot of those people found common ground. A lot of the people in on this movement today were Bernie bros or Trump supporters, and they didn't care what political background you came from. If you were in on this movement, you were in on it. Mm -hmm. And um, it crossed over lines and it brought people together that had not been brought together before. And if you're still stuck in old school politics, red versus blue, you missed out on today because today was different than that. Today was today. We transcended right versus left, Democrat versus Republican. And that's what makes it so special. And I don't think people have recognized that yet. If you're still arguing about right versus left and red versus blue, you're last year in 2020 still, you know, this is new and this is changing and nobody cares who those people were, if they were red or blue or what. Well said. And there's nothing like money to bring people together, you know, when you're kind of killing it together. For sure. And, and, and nothing brings people together like feeling like they have a common enemy. Um, and I think right now everybody feels like the common enemy is D.C. and, and Wall Street. And, um, you know, because a small group of people are getting rich and they're politicians and they're Wall Street bankers. And the rest of us are like, well, thanks for the 600 bucks. That's great. So well, I'll use that 600 bucks to buy some GameStop stock and screw you. So... <laughs> Let's do it, you know, and, and I think there was a collective movement that happens once in a lifetime that happened today, and, and uh, we'll be talking about it for a long time. Indeed. Okay, I want to ask you some personal finance questions. Sure. Housing, transportation, and food are the three big expenses in just about everybody's monthly yeah. budget. What is the fourth biggest line item, do you think? Housing, transportation, and food fourth one oh man that's a great question if you don't count it as housing i'd say just general housewares and gadgets and and um clothing and you know i don't know what whatever you want to call it i call it personal um expenses like i'm looking around my room here and i'm like man i spent a lot of money on you know um quilts for my bed or you know bed sheets and pillows and and dressers and and furniture and carpet and 
God damn, I got, I got thousands of dollars just in this room alone. So I, yeah, I'd have to say, I've never been asked that question before, but that's a great question. I'd say probably just, just random stuff, um, <laughs> you know, in general. I mean, it's just like it adds up. I don't think we, we quantify it very well. I think that's the problem with budgeting softwares. It kind of gets tacked on to other categories, but in general, it's just sort of the day-to-day life and, and things we buy, you know, yeah. like I got a full, full length mirror for, you know, looking at, at, at in the morning. Well, that, you know, where did I put that in? What, what <laughs> category would that be in? You know, house maintenance. Um, if you own a home is significantly underrated uh, as a money drain. You and own your home rent. though, right? I do. Yeah. Well, the bank owns it, you know, but I pay them back for it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do though. Yeah. I I go back and forth about owning a home. I, I like having my own little domain and do what I want, but um, part of me just wants to to have no stress and rent, let somebody else deal with all the hassles. Um, You know, especially on days when I'm making four or five phone calls to deal with things being fixed or, or whatever. You said that you went into debt twice. How did, how did you get into debt a second time? Uh, well, that was the divorce. You know, I told you the story how we kind of got into debt the first time. We, we just kind of went a little crazy. We had, you know, good incomes and we had a bunch of kids and houses and cars and lived the American dream and found ourselves 30 grand in debt. Uh, we worked our way out of that. And then I got divorced, got into about just about the same amount of debt. Uh, between legal legal fees and and um, having to move into a you know with one income into a into a home and everything was expensive for a while after that you know you don't the thing about divorce people don't realize is you know the financial implications people think it has to do with the legal fees and whatever what it is is that you went from two incomes supporting one household to two incomes supporting two households mm-hmm. and so you you pretty darn close to double your expenses, you know, but you have the same amount of money coming in between the two of you. <laughs> and so um, when you've got kids, obviously, if you don't have kids, it doesn't matter. But if you've got kids, you're basically still running a, a joint household. You're just living in two different homes, the same amount of income coming in unless one of you remarries. So um, it's tough. The first few years, I, I racked up some more debt um, the same way I did. Not the same way, because it was more of necessity. I wasn't spending like crazy or anything. It was just out of necessity. Um, but I found myself in the same situation and dug myself out of debt the second time by myself without help from a spouse or two incomes. And so I'm pretty proud of that, uh, feat there. Um, you know, the downside is that it's almost 40 and, and was starting over with nothing. Um, so when they say, you know, what should your net worth be by 40 or what should be in your 401k by 40? I say, well, uh, for me, it's none. I've got to, I got to start over and, and build from scratch, but that's okay. You know, I, I'll figure it out. So what sorts of things do you invest in? I, I assume you invest in your company 401k or some sort of retirement plan. Yeah, I do a 401k up to the match uh, right now. Um, I do an HSA, which is the best, one of the best investment things out there. Uh, don't sleep on an HSA if it's available to you. It's tax-free all the way through, including payroll taxes. And it's tax-free when you take it out if you use it for medical expenses. So it's one of the best investments. Um, so I max the, max the HSA, um, 401k. And beyond that right now, I'm investing in my businesses. I've got a couple different things going on that I'm trying to build because I'm starting over at 40. If I'm going to retire at any reasonable age, 
Um, I can't follow the the old school advice of just throw 10% in my 401k and then I'll be a millionaire at 65. That's not going to happen when you start at 40. Um, so I've got to get a little creative. I got to bring more money in, you know, on top of my day job to get, have any chance of retiring at an earlier age. And so that's my, that's my goal is to uh, invest in businesses that are a little bit more return than just throwing money in the market. Do you do some coaching, financial coaching? I do. I do coach a lot of people. I've been coaching for a few years and uh, that's going really well. We, you know, I set people up and help them get out of debt. I can kind of help people get from where I was to where I am. Um, you know, I'm not going to be a get, get rich quick guy uh, by any means, but I've been where you are and I can get you there, get you out. You said that you have an internal monologue, but you're, you're such a clear writer, which, as I said earlier, is indicative of clear thinking. How do those two things jive, the inner monologue and the, the clear writing? Well, first of all, I've heard people don't have the internal monologue. And I'm I like, don't. What? Yeah. I, I, I'm just blown away by that. I just, I can't, like, I mean, there is a conversation going on in my head 24, you know, well, when I'm awake, right? Um, 16 hours a day and it can't be turned off. It's just always there. It's a, me talking to myself in my head. It's like, there's two people. I can listen to that monologue in my head and that monologue is my writing. If I really listen to it, mm -hmm. right? Like, like I can pick up on what people are thinking because I'm thinking it, but I can actually catch myself thinking it. And so if that makes sense, I'll be like, well, what's the mood of the room? The mood of the room is whatever's that little monologue in my head is going on that I'm just, if I can get it out onto paper or into words, it'll resonate with people. And so being in tune with that monologue, I used to fight the monologue. It used to give me a lot of anxiety, always thinking all the time, try to turn that damn brain off, you know, um, it, it's, uh, but now it's a treasure if I, if I really listen to it and, and uh, give it its time. So it helps me write. Uh, I'm thankful for it. Uh, you know, I'm my own best friend. I, t I like to say um, I've had some of the best memories in my whole life with myself, like just doing things by myself. And I laugh with myself about the good times I had doing stuff and not everybody can do that. So uh, I'm thankful for that. Good for you. Have you done any sort of meditation to try to control it? No, no, I cannot meditate. Um, I despise meditation. And some people would say, man, you just didn't give enough of a chance, but I'm an active meditation person in the sense that my meditation is being busy. I work with my hands. If I'm anxious or having, you know, need to calm my mind, I need to get my body busy. Um, I did a CrossFit for a, for a couple of years and that was my meditation. Like I got to be, the only way I can get out of my head is to be in my body. If that makes sense. Like I, I, I need to be like so physically busy and active doing something that I forget about thinking a long, busy hike with a lot, you know, hot, sweaty, going on some long hike where I'm dying or doing a CrossFit workout or, you know, being out skiing in five below weather. That's the stuff, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's me. I need to like overwhelm my senses. So I'm like the opposite of most meditation. You're trying to quiet all of it. Um, I need to overwhelm my senses so my mind can't think. Okay, man, I want yeah. to be respectful of your time, but do you have time for fun questions before we get out of here? Sure, sure, sure. All right. Social media, net negative or net positive for society? Uh, net positive. Absolutely. Because of the relationships you've built? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've gone from a society that was stuck based on geography. Like your situation was largely determined by where you live. Your friends were determined by proximity to, 
the fact that I can, some of my best friends are people I've never met in person and we share so much in common in ideas and, and views on life that we would have never met without social media. And um, I think that's moving us forward in a grand way. Of course, there's always downsides to everything, but um, you know, there's downsides to being only be able to meet people within one square mile of your house too. So yeah. uh, um, I think it net good for sure. So your new girlfriend, where'd you meet her? Well, I say new, but sorry. Oh, at the grocery store. Dude, you're not an introvert if you met your girlfriend at the grocery store. Oh, well, she's an extrovert. She started the convo, she'll say. (laughs) She'll she'll claim that she started the small talk, but I did ask for her phone number right in front of the cashier who rolled her eyes um, (laughs) at me as I did that. But I got the number and and, uh, it's worked out pretty well, so. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. In their prime, who are you taking on a dinner date? Heather, Heather Locklear, Kathy Ireland, or Christy Brinkley? Oh, Christy Brinkley. Gosh, man, that's a, I'm a sucker for Christy. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think was, she was in, she was in the, um, she was in like the vacation movies, right? With uh, Chevy Chase and stuff. Yes. Oh man. One time yeah, yeah, driving a, a Ferrari. Yeah. Teenage boy watching those movies, man. That, those are some memories. <laughs> okay. Same question. Who are you taking on a dinner date? Cameron Diaz, Alicia Silverstone, or Christine Taylor? That's the gal who played Jan in the Brady Bunch movie. Ben Stiller's wife, uh, Alicia Silverstone. Man, she was she was a big crush of mine for for years, man. Although I saw her recently in a um, uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie, my kids were watching, and she was the mom. And I was like, oh man, my my childhood crush is now playing the mom in a movie. Uh, it hurt, man. Well, had she at least attained milf status, or no? Not really. I didn't uh, even know it was Alicia Silverstone until halfway through the movie. I was like, that's Alicia Silverstone. Oh. It was painful. Well, don't Google Liv Tyler either. You remember we must have been in eighth grade when that video oh, came out, that Aerosmith yes, video with yes. Alicia Silverstone and Liv don't Tyler. Don't tell me. Don't tell me she didn't age well. Well, don't, don't Google it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last one of those questions. Dinner date yeah. with Halle Berry or Scarlett Johansson? Oh, I'm a big Scarlett Johansson fan. Yeah, I mean, the Marvel movies and stuff. It's, uh, I think my, my 14-year-old son would be in with me on that one. <laughs> So, who are your two to three best friends? I got my buddy down here, who, a childhood friend from high school who um, lives about 20 minutes away. John, he's, he's a great dude. Um, and I've met a couple of people on Twitter. I'd say um, Hutt, and some people remember him. He was, he's kind of dropped off Twitter, but good dude, good friend. And my dad, I think my dad is, has been uh, one of my best friends of late. That's cool. How, how old is your dad? Uh, he's uh, like 66, 67. Yeah. Retired or still working? Uh, he's like semi-retired. He does odd jobs. He's retired from his main profession, but uh, he works funeral in the funeral business, drives hearses and limousines, and, and uh, seems to be in, enjoying his little retirement uh, low-stress gig. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. My dad actually retired at 52. Um, he had a medical condition. He needed to retire um, early, and he had a decent pension. Um, but he's since had that medical condition fixed. So he's actually kind of antsy and wishes, I think he wishes he hadn't retired at 52. Mm. But, and uh, what do John and Hutt do for a living? They're in uh, engineering technical fields. If you and John and Hutt and your dad, let's say, could go anywhere in the world for one week, where would you go? I think we'd all like to go to Augusta National and watch mm. uh, the Masters. 
So I don't know about John, but he'd be stuck with us because I think the other three of us would want to be there. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, if you were stuck on a golf course all day long and you could only bring one band's album with you, who are you taking with you? Eric Church is uh, my guy. He's my favorite uh, artist. You know, what's interesting is if I had to take one album with me all day, it would be the one that you showed me earlier. Was that 10? Right here. Pearl Jam 10. Oh, yeah. Pearl yeah. Jam 10. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great, man. That's a good one. I, I I play that on repeat all the time. I put I put I put it on the record player and fall asleep to it. <laughs> That's so cool. You're making me want yeah. to get a record player. Oh man, I got the I got the Metallica Black album I just picked up right here. <laughs> I'm not even sure I would know how to set the record player, where to put the needle and all that. I'd have to relearn <laughs> I know my, my dad had to show me all that stuff. <laughs> okay, if yeah. someone gave you a hundred thousand dollars and forced you to invest it in three companies either Tesla, Amazon, or Apple, but you could allocate the 100000 however you wish. So how much are you allocating toward Tesla, Amazon, and Apple? I got to say Amazon and Apple are not going anywhere. So I'd probably put, I'd probably put 40% in each of those. So 80% and I'd put 20% in Tesla and see what happens. But Amazon and Apple are, are, are staples and uh, they're not going anywhere. So Okay, you're hosting a dinner party at your house and cost is not an issue. Are you having four guests, six guests, or 12 guests? No, oh, man, I'm a four guest kind of person. I mean, uh, my favorite kind of dinner is one-on-one, -on -one, but uh, four is plenty. I'm an <laughs> introvert. I mean, once you get past four, I'm, I'm checking out. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a conversation with one person in the corner. <laughs> okay, at this dinner party, you cling, cling your glass and you stand up because you want to thank everyone for coming what do you say next? By GameStop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I just say, um, you, you know, try not to think too much. Enjoy the moment. Enjoy the family and friends you got. This is what this is. The, the best moments in life are these moments. Um, you don't realize that they're happening until they're over. But really, the true joy of life is realizing you're experiencing moments that you'll never forget. But knowing it. it at the time it doesn't happen very often you got to cherish it it's a good point i read recently that when someone dies that's when you spend the most time reflecting on your time with them and yeah. so that's like the most real thing that there is like maybe that's what's real not your time with them and the way it was said was so yeah, yeah. powerful and it just made me think yeah we should probably spend more time reflecting on our time with our best friend while they're here why don't we do yeah, that? I thought of that a lot because recently my my mentor and good friend passed away and he was in his seventies and and we had been friends for thirty years and he was I was telling you earlier, he's got a flip phone, he never had a smartphone, you know, he's kinda old dude just just in his ways. But the, one of the last times I ever saw him was I went over to his house to visit him and and have some dinner and and have a beer and you know, he did what old people do and he wanted to watch like game shows, you know, and, and we're like sitting there on his couch and I'd rather just be watching like the basketball game or, you know, whatever. And he puts on the game show network and he's like, you got to watch these game shows. They're great. You know, and in my head, I'm like, I'm kind of rolling my eyes and I'm kind of like, man, how can I get out of here? I got to get going. You know, I got stuff to do or whatever. After he passed away, I look back on that moment as like, mm. man, like if I could do that over again, why would I ever wish for that to be? to be over. It was one of the last times I ever spent any quality time with him. Why would I wish for that moment to be passed? Or why would I be worried about 
rushing out to do stuff that was totally stupid. I don't even know what I was rushing out to do, you know, wash my car or something stupid. It was like, man, just sit there and watch the game shows. The guy wants to watch some game shows and just enjoy it because that's one of the last real memories I have. How do you get yourself to, to recognize that in the moment and be more in the moment? That's always been one of life's biggest challenges to me because I'm aware of it. But at the same time, man, I just want to get on with my day. You know, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. It's only in hindsight that, that it seems meaningful, you know, watching game shows with my buddy seemed silly at the time, but now look, looking back, it's meaningful. So. Yeah. Because most people on their deathbed wish that they had spent more time with their relationships or wish that they hadn't neglected relationships. And so if mm -hmm. so many people on their deathbed are saying that, we need to figure out a way to prioritize relationships. It's hard to do because you got to quiet that voice in your head that, that kind of has this false sense of urgency that you want to be doing stuff and getting things done and, and taking care of things and whatever. I, I don't know what it is, but even if you're aware of it, the challenge becomes, and you might not experience this because you don't have an internal monologue, but <laughs> you know, those of us with an internal monologue, we can be aware. Like I was aware of the fact when I was there watching the game shows with my buddy that I should probably just be relaxed and enjoying the moment versus trying to go and be feel like I need to be busy doing something else. But it didn't stop that thought from being there, you know? So it, it's sort of this conflict that I think a lot of us face, which is you can be aware of it and still not be able to stop that train of thought. And, and that's something that I, that I've always struggled with and that I, I think I want to take my readers on a journey um, down that path someday because I think many of them would resonate, you know, and, and feel that and because you're aware. And I'm aware of the fleeting, like we talked about with our kids, where you spend 98% of your time with them before they're 18. And it's like, well, shit, man, you know, my, my son's about to turn 15 and that time is slipping away. And I'm going to, you know, the little mundane things that annoy the shit out of me right now, I'm going to miss like crazy in three years when he's gone. And I'm going to wish I could have any one of those moments back for one second. And, um, so how, how can we be, even be aware of that and still not be able to like really appreciate the moment? It still annoys you, even though you're like, I'm going to wish for this, you know, like you're at a cold freezing soccer game, watching your kid play soccer. And you're like, man, when's this going to be over? I just want to get out of here and go home. And like 10 years from now, you would give anything to be back at that soccer game, watching your kid play. I, I don't know how to strike that balance. That's kind of one of the great mysteries of life to me that I'm trying to sort through and I'll probably write about because I think the only way I can sort it, sort it out is to write about it. But it is sort of that one of those deep questions of life that I can't figure out. I was doing the most wonderful thing before my wife and I decided to settle down, which we still have this wonderful life. Don't get me wrong, but we were traveling around the world without jobs and mm -hmm. it was, it was paid for by, rental income that I had back in the States. And so I used to tell her daily, almost daily, I feel like I'm not grateful enough for this situation. What can yeah. I do to express more gratitude? And yeah, she would yeah. tell me, don't, you're fine. Like you're, you're grateful enough. You're going to make yourself miserable if you yeah. worry about whether or not you're grateful enough. Yeah, yeah. Right now she's getting about, well, she takes one hour naps right now because our baby yeah. wants to feed about every hour. And oh, it is miserable, man. but yeah, yeah. the baby's only going to be that size for a very yeah. short time. 
And so yeah, I'm yeah. reminding her, maybe this is why we're good for each other. We compliment yeah. each other in this way, but I'm reminding her, Hey, this is, this is going to be a very temporary phase where the baby is only this size. So adorable for, for, for a short time, you know, it's, it comes with some downside. And so we just have to manage yeah. through it and yeah, appreciate yeah. it while we have it. it. It's hard, but you know, Speaking of, of mindfulness and self-awareness, which I think kind of coexist, that's why I think so many people are trying meditation because mm -hmm. they want exactly what we're talking about. They're so future-focused in their head. They have the internal monologue going all the time that they want to catch themselves when they're in a great conversation like this. I'm enjoying this conversation thoroughly. Mm -hmm. I don't realize that two hours has gone by, right? <laughs> Same. So you yeah, have yeah. to catch yourself and really like say, man, Mark, this is a great conversation. I'm really appreciating this, buddy. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it. That's all it is, though. That's it. Like I've just done what people are striving to do. It's just catching yourself in that and appreciating it because yeah, that's what it, happiness is. Right. It stems from gratitude. It does. And, and but there's this also like there's this phenomenon that I that where the absolutely, truly most beautiful moments you don't even think that it's kind of this paradox where mm. you're literally so much in the moment and enjoying it that you don't think that I need to be grateful or I need to be thinking, you know, or, or think this is an awesome moment. Like you're literally just, you don't even think it's like, you're just in it. One of the few things, few times where I really get into that mode is sort of um, when you go on vacation somewhere and, and you get away from responsibilities and you get away from the day-to-day hustle and bustle. And, you know, it's about the second or third day of vacation and you're somewhere where you've never been. And it's like your mind is in this different world where you're just exploring wherever you are, right? Like you're, you're in a new place you've never been. Your mind is on overload thinking about the, the sensory inputs and everything you're experiencing. You don't know anything. You don't have any worries about, man, I got to go clean the house or I got to go take care of the oil change or I got to do this or that. You just, you're just doing whatever it is you're doing. And it's only when you get back that you realize that how great that was because you were so in the moment and you had so many other things preoccupying your thoughts that you couldn't think about that moment other than just to be in it and do it. I think those are the, the, the experiences we try to recreate or try to create for ourselves somehow. I think sometimes people even get too caught up in nostalgia because they try to go back and create moments like that over and over again, but you can't, you can never recreate a moment that is truly in the moment. They just sort of happen. Um, you can't plan them. You can't force them, but only looking back, it's sort of the paradox is that usually the best moments in your life, looking back, you didn't realize it at the time. You just, you just won't even recognize it. And, and it's, it, that's almost a good thing. It's like a feature, not a bug in the sense that you will look back on it. But at that moment, you weren't thinking about how you would think about it in the future. You know, you would just, you were just there. You were just there. You had no idea that in 20 years, you'd still be thinking about it. That's so true. Yeah. That's what sports is, right? I mean, yeah, you're in, in a baseball game and you're hitting yeah. a, a home run or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's not really joyful. You're so into the you're so focused on the pitcher and that ball coming over the plate and your swing. And a lot of it's just muscle memory. And I think a lot of pro athletes struggle after their careers are over because the only place they could really escape life 
is on the field or in, you know, on the court or whatever, on the ice or whatever it is, like you're in a different world. That's what I loved. I always loved about sports. It's like whatever's happening in, in the real world is gone when you're on out there. Yeah. Like you can just be focused on that and, and nothing else matters. And, and I get it. Like, that's why CrossFit's so popular. Cause when you get into that CrossFit gym and, and you got those people cheering you on and you're throwing weights around and stuff, nothing else matters, but what you're doing right there. And people want to want to experience that forever. Pro athletes experience it on, you know, to way more than any of us would ever experience it. And they struggle without it, I think. Um, but we all need that thing. Yes. Yeah. I think it's why a lot of band members, I say band members, like rock stars, they're searching for that high and get into drugs because you can't maintain that high of 40,000 screaming people all the time. How do I get back to that high? How can you ever do that? You know, like how, how does Tiger Woods or Tom Brady, you know, when they're, when their careers are over, how do they ever come anywhere close to what they experienced? during the highs of their career you know and some people can manage it but you, they'll tell you i'm sure you watch them it's like nothing you know they can be in the booth doing broadcasting for the next 30 years but nothing's going to compare to that moment that they had on that field and yeah. you know doing that sport and being in that zone you know they talk about the zone the zone is one of the most fascinating things in the world to me when you are in the zone of whatever it is that you're good at and you enjoy that's true bliss and that's what we talked about that's where you're not going to be thinking about you know, trying to treasure that moment or be grateful. You are literally just in that moment. Yep. That's what people seek. That's what people, and that's what this analog thing, I think it ties into what we were saying earlier. I think you can't be in the moment and be online at the same time. And so there's going to be this like craving of those experiences outside of the digital world. Do you hit that flow state, that bliss when you're writing sometimes? I do sometimes. That's why it's those, you know, Hyperion articles and some of my newsletters, um, you know, I've put out, I've been in the zone where I write it in less than an hour and I don't even think about, like, I don't even remember writing it almost. It's almost <laughs> like, it's almost like some like force takes over and I write it. And then when I'm done, I know it's good because I know I was in that zone. I wasn't forcing it or I wasn't, you know, pressing or anything. So it's a beautiful feeling and, and writing is probably one of the only places that I can get that now. And uh, so I'm drawn to it for sure. Have you ever tried LSD or any sort of psychedelic? I have not, no. I'm reading this book called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Yeah. And there's a chapter in here where he talks about after more than half a century of its more or less constant companionship, oneself, this ever-present voice in the head, this ceaselessly commenting, interpreting, labeling, defending, (laughs) it becomes all too familiar, this I Each of us develops our shorthand ways of slotting and processing everyday experiences and solving problems. And while this is no doubt adaptive, it helps us get the job done with a minimum amount of fuss. Eventually, it becomes rote. It dulls us. The muscles of attention atrophy. Then he talks about habits and how they're useful. But the efficiencies of the adult mind, they blind us to the present moment. We're constantly jumping ahead to the next thing. One of the things that commends travel, art, nature, work, and certain drugs to us is the way these experiences at their best block every mental path forward and back, immersing us in the flow of a present that is literally wonderful. Wonder being the byproduct of precisely the kind of unencumbered first sight or virginal noticing 
to which the adult brain has closed itself off. And then he goes on to say, I I inhabit a near future tense, my psychic thermostat set to a low simmer of anticipation and too often worry. The good thing is I'm seldom surprised. The bad thing, I'm seldom surprised. Fascinating. Wow. Damn, that's great. <laughs> it is. It's a deep book. Uh, wow. uh, but people are trying to short circuit getting to this blissful state. Well, I should say they're trying to shake up the snow globe to try mm-hmm. to reset their operating system, so to speak. And yeah, yeah. there are different ways of getting there, but the short-circuited way it appears is LSD and supposedly mm-hmm. there's some psychological benefits. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're starting to I've study it I've heard a lot again. about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think bad trips in the 60s made people, it scared a lot of people from trying it, but it's starting, yeah. I don't know if you've heard, Tim Ferriss is supporting research like at Johns Hopkins. Yeah, and, I've heard more people talk about it. It's becoming more mainstream again. Uh, yeah. You know, some talk about that. I, you know, that might be something down the road I, I uh, look into. <laughs> um, um, I'm not uh, there yet. I think one thing that fascinates me, though, is the our psychological a perception of the passing of time and how our daily habits and, and routines, if they become very rote, can make time seem to pass by faster. But one thing about 2020 was that the time slowed down significantly for most people. And that's because we were doing something different, mm-hmm. right? Like our brains were, it was like going on vacation in somewhere you've never been, like a week can feel like forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but a week, a week at home going to work every day and doing the same thing feels like, man, I thought it was just Monday and it's already Friday, you know? So I, the, the perception of the passing of time is something that uh, I'm fascinated with because I want it to slow down, right? Like, man, with the older you get and you have kids and whatever, like stuff just seems to fly. And I don't want that, right? Like I, I, 2020 was great in the sense that it slowed everything down. It still feels like, like 2020 was 10 years. From March of 2020 till June of 2020 felt like it was like two years and it was like three months, you know? So that I think is important to me. And I think it's important the way to, to change the perception of time or slow the perception of time is to do things outside of a, a regular routine. It's so easy, like you said, as an adult to get into these rote habits. And uh, next thing you know, you wake up and you're 60. So I'm very mindful of that. And, and changing things up and changing scenery and whatever I can to slow time down. And I think it's cool. And I want to read more about it. I want to learn more about it, whatever it takes. I think that's kind of a cool concept to me. I'm exactly the same way. I think yeah. that because we had so many milestones to look forward to when we were younger, like high school or getting a driver's license, turning 18, being able to drink, yeah. whatever it was, yeah, that yeah, yeah. slowed things. Even the semesters slowed things down, yeah, you know, yeah. going from a sophomore to a junior but when you're older, you have to create these milestones for yourself. And like you said, when you're in a foreign country, time tends to slow because you're not in the habitual get up, go to work, not paying attention to things, just kind of coasting right through. My wife and I, I don't know if I told you this, but we're living in Airbnbs for 30 days at a time. Oh, okay. Nice. Early retirement. Yeah. yeah. So we were able to create that. But I was deliberate about trying to create that. So it's tougher mm. with COVID, but uh, we're living in New Orleans yeah. for probably a year, and then we're going to hopefully travel again if she's up to it. That's interesting to me, just moving around and you know, it changes the perception of time because you're always changing your scenery. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, I've learned so much, and I could do a whole other podcast on it, but one of the things that <laughs> right. really 
since you're a personal finance guy, it really makes you realize you don't need a lot of money to live. You really, really don't. There are billions of people in this world living on less than 20% of what we're living on, and they're happier than us. How do you (laughs) explain that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. We think we need it all and need tons of money. I always laugh when people say, I need like $5 million to retire. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I could, I could live pretty comfortably on 500,000 right now. You know, I think there's this perception of, of, I don't know what it is, the the lifestyle you're going to live or something, but um, I don't have that, that bug. I'm, I'm happy to live a simple life and I don't need to spend a lot of money. Ditto. You man, when yeah. you're at the storage unit, and you're trying to decide what to throw away before you start traveling, you're like, oh, no, I need to keep this. You forget about everything in that storage unit when you're traveling, yeah. and you realize you could live out the rest of your life and never see that stuff again, and you'd be just yeah. fine. You don't oh, yeah. need a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a base. I had two basement floods teach me a lot about that. Like, I've been keeping all kinds of crap, you know, and, and the basement flooded and just wiped everything out. I'm like, why did I even keep any of that? I didn't care at all. Once it was ruined and I had to throw it all out, and none of it mattered at all. Like, I, I don't know. It's just silly, right? Yeah. Okay, just a few more. Historically, how much do you think communists value human life? I think they value it a lot. I think that they're just, they, they think their intentions are good and that it's good for everybody. Uh, it's just misguided. What percentage you know. likelihood would you give the coronavirus being deliberately unleashed on the world? you had to assign a percentage of that being likely oh boy yeah maybe 30 percent chance if china were at war with us do you think they would tell us (laughs) um i think we could be at war with them and we just don't realize it yet (laughs) you tweeted recently asking for followers to share a word that would describe their year what is your word for 2021 uh my word is embrace embrace everything. So whatever comes my way, embrace it. Don't fight it. Don't wish it were different. Just embrace it and and make the most of it. Every opportunity, every hardship. Love it. How can people connect with you online, Mark? Well, my Twitter is at Mark Allen Bover. It's A-L-L-A-N. And my uh, newsletter is markallenbover.substack.com. That's where I'm at. How do you like Substack? I like it so far. Um, I hear there's some new new things coming out, like review that are taking it on. But uh, I'm happy with Substack. I, I mean, I switched over from Mailchimp, and that was terrible. And I went to Substack, and um, I'm happy. Yeah. Well, dude, I really enjoyed this. I knew I'd enjoy meeting you, but um, I enjoyed the conversation yeah. even more than I thought I would. Thank that was you. a great combo, man. Thanks for having me on, Brad. Appreciate Likewise. it. Likewise, friends. Thank you All for right. tuning in to this episode. It means so much to me. If you enjoyed this episode with Mark, please copy the link and share it with a friend. And if you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 